Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 38. Well, how bad do you want to live? Last time, on April 19, 1943, the ZOB was able to shock the SS troops, attempting to finish off what they had started with the Gross Axion a few months back. It was time, according to the Nazis, to send the remaining thirty-five to 45,000 Jews within the ghetto to Treblinka too. So, the SS had entered from a northeastern gate of the ghetto and approached Cordell Street from the east. But Isaac Zuckerman, Zavia Lubetkin, and Angel, their leader, had been preparing for this by stockpiling pipe bombs, grenades, and other explosives. Some of those hidden under the very cobblestones the Nazis would have to cross to get at them. The result was half a dozen Germans dead, many more injured, and their leader, Colonel von Samarin Frankenegg, unsure of what to do next. But then his safety net, General Stroop of the SS, who had been sent in by Himmler himself, took over. Stroop had seen numerous rebellions before in Russia and had always crushed them. It was time to end this Jewish rebellion. As General Stroop prepared his men, Zavia Lubetkin and her Jewish fighters on Cordell Street were still cheering that morning's victory. Fatigue was gone, forgotten, as the young men and women slapped each other on the backs, danced, and sang songs. While it's true that mere feet away from them, along the street just outside their door, their environs were unrecognizable from what had been just hours ago. But that seemed not to matter. The day was theirs. Also, they had lost not one person from their unit after taking on the SS, who now had at least six less men to menace them with. What a day. Then suddenly, a scout dashed into the room. German soldiers, the boy yelled, which was all he could get out for a few seconds until he caught his breath. But in those few seconds, Zavia and those around her imagined the worst. Finally, he finished saying that hundreds of German soldiers were gathered at the intersection of Zamenhof and Goose Streets, just one block east of their section of the ghetto. It seemed that they were preparing to come at them at any moment. Meanwhile, a bit to the east of Zavia's location, the enclave Sima Rothhauser was in, was as quiet as a tomb. Their area of responsibility, the Brushmakers District, had yet to be challenged that day. That silence also permeated the enclave of Baruch Spiegels, to the south of Zavia's location. It was known to both sides as the Productive Ghetto. But what those of the Brushmakers District and the Productive Ghetto didn't know was, certain powerful German millionaires had paid off higher SS officers to stay away from those very areas, so their Jewish slaves could go on making products for the German army and for their owners, more and more money. But now General Stroop was in charge, and he had decided to start with the basics by changing up the tactics the men used as they moved east along Goose Street. The first change was that they would focus on one building or one position at a time, thus making sure it was clear before moving on. Next, he told his men to spread out as they dashed from one hiding place to another. That way, if another buried bomb went off, 
as Stroop knew would happen, fewer of his men would be killed. This method would undoubtedly take more time, but would get results. And unknown by the SS general, Zavia's base, having been just informed of the oncoming SS troops, was first to be hit. Although Zavia was in charge overall of her part of the ghetto, the younger man in charge of the troops was Zachariah Artstein. He quickly made it clear to all that if the Germans overran their positions, everyone was to scatter and regroup at the ghetto hospital just one block further on Goose Street. But no sooner had Artstein gotten this warning out than the room they were standing in shook on all sides. Something big had just hit the structure. Whether it was an artillery shell or tank fire, what the Jewish fighters were about to find out was that Stroop had worked out this tactic while fighting in Russia. He would have the artillery distract the enemy, making them keep their heads down as his infantry moved into place. But this time, there was a twist. Without the rebels knowing it, each blast brought the SS troops closer. When the shelling stopped, Zavia, Artstein, and another man that Isaac had asked to keep an eye on Zavia in his absence looked out the window, and they were surprised to see that SS troops had made it all the way to the corner of Goose and Cordell Streets, just outside their window. This was way too close, as in the rebels had lost valuable opportunities to lob explosives at the men as they were approaching. Then Zavia realized in amazement that the soldiers had stopped coming forward and were now stacking dozens of mattresses on top of each other in the street. Surely they didn't consider that a safe enough barricade. Yet the mattresses continued to be brought over from a nearby store and piled up as the protective barrier expanded. Artstein ordered those around him to use the very Mausers recovered that morning from fleeing Germans to attack the soldiers in the street. But the fighters soon discovered that the mattresses indeed were thwarting their bullets from the smaller guns. Then the Germans started firing blindly at the buildings around them. They literally raised their guns and began shooting haphazardly. Surely this was not their plan to destroy the remaining Jews at the ghetto, but the firing continued. Then someone grabbed a Molotov cocktail and hurled it at the stack of mattresses. That got a better result as the padded defensive structure wobbled in reaction. Then another rebel grabbed a kerosene-filled bottle and threw it on top of the closest pile. Within seconds, there was an audible whoop as the fire ignited and spread. Turns out, mattresses burn. The SS soldiers quickly abandoned their shabby redoubt and made for sterner protection. The Jewish soldiers quickly started firing at the fleeing men. One SS soldier went down, and those around Zavia cheered as they had done just an hour ago. But when the cheering died down, they could hear shouting from below. It was in Yiddish. Those rebels on lower floors were warning of fire. The building was on fire. As the ragtag group looked around at each other, the smell of smoke confirmed the shouts. Artstein yelled for everyone to leave and meet up later. But as they all climbed up to the fifth floor to use the tunnel that led from one building to the adjoining building, they almost crashed into another scout that was screaming. The Germans had already entered the ghetto hospital and were shooting everyone laid up in beds. Their rendezvous point no longer existed. Artstein panicked, 
so he looked to Zavia. He might have been in charge, but was a good eight years younger than this poised woman. Remaining calmer than Arnstein, she ordered scouts to be sent out to find another way. And as they had climbed to the fifth floor, it would take the fire longer to get to them. There was still time. But time passed. The smoke thickened, and the narrow tunnel they were in grew hotter. Soon, it wasn't even possible to see the person next to them. The smoke made breathing almost unbearable. Then a scout came and said that he had found a way out. All of the people with Zavia followed. The small boy dashed in, around, and through incredibly small or narrow holes and openings. Zavia didn't think she would make it through most of them, but such was everyone's fear of either being burned alive or tortured by the Germans for their defiance that everyone made themselves as small as the scrawny boy leading the way. It didn't hurt that the person behind pushed very, very hard. Meanwhile, Isaac Zuckerman was suffering from his own defeat. That morning of April 19th, as the people he most cared about were fighting for their lives, he had been trying to arrange an agreement with the Polish Home Army. But the High Command had already made its decision. Now was not the time for a general uprising. Yes, the Germans had lost tens, if not hundreds of thousands of soldiers in the lands of Russia. Rostov and Kharkov had been retaking, as had most of the Crimea. But it was the considered opinion of the Home Army Command that the Communists and Nazis had not yet finished bleeding each other enough. The Russians might help the Poles one day, but for now they were still hundreds of miles away. And just because the Jews of the ghetto were in the fight of their lives didn't change that equation for the almost 400,000 volunteers of the Polish army. The most the home army would offer was to help the Jews through a series of tunnels escape the ghetto. But Zavia and the rest could not leave without taking every single Jew still in hiding within the ghetto with them. But even more frustrating for Zuckerman was that not only would the home army not help, but every one of its soldiers had been ordered to stand down. The time was not right. Not yet. Ironically, the Nazis were of the same mind, but from the other direction. With the war against Russia not going quite as planned, the last thing Berlin needed was chaos in its rear section. Anything that could or would interfere with rushing the replacing men and material to the Eastern Front could not be countenanced. So an order went throughout Warsaw that everyone, every man, every unit was to be on high alert, yet no action was to be taken to provoke the Poles. The Jews of the ghetto, that was a different matter. But nothing should happen to anger the home army. Himmler heard of this and took it one step further. He altered the order so it read to all units of the general government. He then called General Stroop himself and said, Don't provoke the Poles. Appease them if necessary. For now, locally, the fight was with the Jews and further afield with the Russians. The Poles would have to wait their turn, and they were content with that. General Stroop was enraged when he realized the rebels along Goose Street had gotten away. But then he realized his overall plan was the right one. He would continue to level 
or if necessary, burn the buildings within the ghetto, which would either crush or burn the Jews or smoke them out. Flames or Treblinka too, didn't matter. Either one would do. But as his men continued to enter the reduced area where the Jews could be holed up and set buildings alight, there was still no response. No one came out to fight his men. So he kept at it, because progress was progress. Until it wasn't. Only days after the April 19th resistance had started, Stroop started receiving daily messages from Hans Frank's administration staff in Krakow, asking when was this uprising going to be over, which was bad enough. But then the same daily questions started coming from Berlin, from Himmler, head of the SS. Turns out that politics, that game almost as dangerous as war, had raised its ugly head. Hans Frank, a hated rival of Himmler's, was using the Jewish resistance to castigate the SS to Hitler. If that was not bad enough, soon the Wehrmacht was taunting the SS, saying the men in black were facing their own Jewish Stalingrad, or rather, their own Ghettograd, as men who used killing as an ordinary tool. Taunts, slights, and insults could quickly become a deadly game. And for General Stroop, it only got worse. Soon he was getting calls, late at night, several times a week, from Himmler himself. The insomniac in Berlin had no compunction about calling his subordinates at all hours of the night, asking for a status report. But what Stroop could not explain to Himmler, because he did not know himself, was that within days of chasing the remaining ZOB members down into their deepest holes, his men, now that they had pushed on to Murnau Square, a few streets over to the northeast, were now fighting not Angel and his fanatic fighters, but instead the more sophisticated, better entrenched, with impressive pillboxes, better armed, including four submachine guns, JMU, the Jewish Military Union, the right wing of the Zionists, who were able to obtain their supplies and weapons from the Security Corps. The Security Corps were technically under the Home Army, but had always done as they saw fit. To prove this, and indulging in a bit of chutzpah that Zavia could never imagine doing, the JMU hung a pair of flags near one of their fortresses. The blue-on-white JMU banner and the red-and-white national colors of its Polish underground partners. These symbols of defiance enraged Stroop, but he couldn't get his men close enough to take them down. Not without casualties. And of those, he had too many already. Not that he was conveying accurate numbers to General Wilhelm Kruger, the top-ranking SS officer in occupied Poland, or to Berlin. On paper, Stroop had reported 52 wounded soldiers and one officer killed. Unofficially, the numbers of dead and wounded were much higher. And not gaining anything with the locations of his current attacks, Stroop changed his focus a little more further south, within the Brushmakers district, which had yet to combat the invaders. Simha watched as the Germans and Ukrainian soldiers came closer, the trigger of a bomb under their feet in his hands. And although the 19-year-old was overjoyed at finally being able to kill Germans, he held off on the trigger for the best 
possible moment. Yet his superior, Hennick Gutmann, could not. Grabbing the detonator from Simha's hand, the older man sent the signal to the bomb, buried below the street. This was the biggest bomb the Zionists had built to date. Just like on April 19th, the bomb was buried under their enclave's main gate. So, when it went off, those men in the front ranks of their oppressors were flung high into the air, or rather, parts of them, higher than the building Simha was in. When the body parts landed and the smoke cleared, a giant hole remained. It took Simha a minute to realize that it wasn't raining, but rather the main water line had been shattered. So, within minutes, the hole had become a muddy swamp, which stopped the SS men further back from reaching their wounded comrades on the other side of the hole, who had not yet been finished off by the Jewish fighters, now shooting down on the dazed and wounded men. But as amazing as the hole was, and the flying enemy body parts had been, none of this prepared Sima or Mark Edelman for what they saw next. The SS were waving a white flag. No, two white flags. Clearly, they wanted to collect their wounded and allow any injured civilians nearby to evacuate. But Edelman was not about to give mercy to those who had never given it to him or his. He knew that, besides collecting their wounded and perhaps buying time to alter their attack, the people of the SS were worried about the very people he was protecting. That is, the Jewish workers of industrialist Walter Kasper Tobins, who made items for the German army. Tobins did not want his people, literally his, he owned them, to be killed or even harmed. He wanted them brought out because he was going to have them moved to a safer location, worked, and then killed. However, where they were now, buried deep underground, seemed safest to them at the moment. But what Edelman didn't know was that Stroop was under orders from Kruger not to harm those trained and skilled workers, just the Jewish fighters. Edelman's only response to the two white flags being held by the men in black uniforms was, shoot them, use the machine guns. The two SS officers barely made it out of there and back to Stroop a few blocks away. The attackers waited a few hours to see if any Jewish civilians would heed the evacuation order given. But when it was clear they would not, Stroop, stressed beyond all endurance with the pressure from Kruger and Himmler, ordered his men to fall back and the artillery and tanks to be moved forward. To hell with the rich industrialist bastards. This was war. The Brushmakers District would be brought low. There would be no hiding places left. And then he would move on from there. Within minutes, the building Edelman was in shook to its very foundations as shells punched massive holes in the walls. Later that night, Stroop watched the chaos from the 15th floor of the Prudential Life Insurance Building near the Germans-only Royal Garden section of Warsaw. Some of the shelling had caused fires to break out. And then it hit the man. Fire! That was the key. He would use fire to burn down the high points the rebels used to shoot down at his men and flush the workers out. That had been bothering him all this time. Where in the hell were the Jewish civilians? There still had to be thousands of them. It seemed obvious now 
hiding underground. Literally, in the basements of the buildings, the rebels were protecting. Fire would take care of everything, all of his problems. He would burn down the ghetto, and with it, these pesky Jewish troublemakers. But for this, he would need permission from General Kruger, if only to cover his ass when the industrialists heard about it. Out went his request that very night. An answer in the affirmative came back early next morning. So, starting in the farthest northeast corner of the Waldorf ghetto, Stroop had his artillery pinned down the rebels, while his flamethrower units moved in. Their spouts of flame could reach the second and third story windows, and so within seconds, those buildings of the Brushmakers district were gutted and abandoned. This caused the rebels to flee south to earlier abandoned buildings. As for the Jewish civilians who didn't have a plan, they just started appearing on the streets, having been flushed out by the flames and smoke. Stroop's men gathered up some and shot others. Of those not killed on the spot, they were taken to the trains to fill Stroop's deportation quotas. This would make Kruger and Himmler and Hitler happy. Now he was getting results. Within days, the ghetto was less tens of thousands of its Jews. The SS general knew he hadn't caught the rebels. Not yet. And may never not. But it didn't matter. He was pushing them, driving them. And there was only so much space to flee. After the first Gross Action, where the ghetto was mostly depopulated, the lower half of the ghetto everything below Forestry Boulevard, was opened to Gentiles to help alleviate the housing shortage. It was there the rebels would have to stop and fight and die. After the northeast corner of the ghetto was leveled, the northwest corner, mostly abandoned already, was set alight and leveled. More civilians fell into Stroop's net. Any survivors had no choice but to flee south and Stroop's artillery, tanks, and flamethrowers followed them. Soon, the left-leaning Zionists, those who had escaped the fire, shells, and guns of the SS, were just north of Forestry Boulevard, and they weren't that many. Nearly half of those that had fought the first day of April 19th were now gone. Mark Edelman, who was at his wit's end, had Seymour Rothauser get word to Zuckerman. They needed help getting out, as many of them as possible. It had only taken days, but now the SS were approaching the main shops district in the southernmost part of the remaining ghetto, where Baruch Spiegel led his soldiers. And just like the enclaves to the northeast and northwest, they were practically out of ammunition, grenades, Molotov cocktails, food, and water. They now all faced the main flaw in Angel's plan of a glorious death. They all had lived longer than anyone thought possible. And now that they had defied the laws of improbability, they all wanted to remain alive and leave this all behind. During one night in late April, as Baruch's soldiers were standing on what remained of a street, someone looking down offered up the idea to Baruch that they should use the sewers to escape. But Stroop, unbeknownst to the desperate rebels, had already thought of that. If these young fighters could somehow 
crawl through the correct 450 feet of excrement-filled series of passages, and if they weren't backed up, and if the fumes didn't cause them to pass out and drown, it wouldn't have mattered anyhow. The SS general had all the lines that his men could find, blocked off. But the remaining rebels didn't know this. So, in small groups around the drain openings, along Forestry Boulevard, the fighters, looking down at the holes, had to ask themselves, how bad did they want to live? The map of Troop's ghetto didn't show the entire truth. The JMU members along Murano Square in the far northeastern corner were not all dead and were not all ready to give up the fight. True, there were very few of them left, just around a hundred, and they, like the other enclaves, had run out of almost everything, but were still determined to resist. The best proof of this was that they had a tunnel to the outside world. It was in perfect working order, and they could leave at any time. But David Effelbaum and Mark Frankel, the JMU local leaders, wanted to stay. They wanted to continue ambushing the SS as they made their way deeper into the ghetto. Their problem wasn't one of courage, but of ammunition and supplies. As for their pillboxes and hideouts, true, they were all gone. But the men and women of the JMU had turned the very rubble Stroop's shells created into their new bases. So, word was sent to the security corps. The JMU needed ammunition. Quickly, a response team was put together, led by Major Henry Iwanski, whose loyalties to the Jews, it must be said, was questionable. But of the 18-member team that entered the ghetto on April 27th, two of Iwanski's brothers and his 16-year-old son were a part. As they came in, each man was carrying a sack of ammunition and alcohol for the wounded to help with the pain. Iwanski later claimed that he believed his mission was to deliver the ammunition and bring Apfelbaum with him as the man was wounded. But according to Iwanski, Apfelbaum simply asked him to take some of the younger fighters, but that he was staying. According to Iwanski, he was so moved by the show of courage that he decided his team would stay as well and resist the SS. Yet the truth may have been that as the sacks were being handed over, the Gentiles were forced to stay because on that very day, Stroop decided to finish off all resistance within the ghetto. A special battle unit of some 300 German and Latvian SS troops, supported by armored carriers and two panzers, were sent in. The fighting was fierce and lasted throughout the day. The sound of gunfire so intense, the ghetto might have been mistaken for the Eastern Front. But by the end, most of the JMU rebels were dead, as were one of Iwanski's brothers and his 16-year-old son. Apfelbaum died the next day, April 28, 1943, from his wounds. The SS were dealt higher-than-expected casualties that day, before they withdrew at dusk, which would ruin Stroop's next report to Berlin, but progress was progress. <laughs>